Ah, yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word line upon line. To Hebrews chapter 10, we'll open with a word of prayer and get straight into the study. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just want to praise you, Lord. We want to thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your word, which points us to Christ and just helps us to more deeply appreciate him and you and, and the great sacrifice that both of you have made. Father, we thank you for this book of Hebrews. We thank you for the faith. That it stimulates in us and the strength and the conviction. And Father, we pray for one another. We pray for our brethren, especially those who are going through a particularly a hard time right now. And I'm mindful of、uh, Paul McIntyre, Father. Just pray that you will strengthen him, that you'll comfort him with, with the Holy Spirit and that comfort that surpasses all understanding. And Father, we sigh and cry for the evil that's taking place in our world, in our society, and we know, Father, that it's just going to increase. As in the days of Noah, so it'll be in the day when our Lord returns. Father, we pray that you'll strengthen us. We thank you that we have your word to feed on. And we pray, God, that you'll bless this study and that you will strengthen us as we feed on your word. We ask this in the holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are, brethren, up to Hebrews 10, chapter 10. And、uh, this is a little bit of a, a, a difficult passage in a sense. And、uh, this is really all about the call to perseverance. Let me just、uh, get set up here. This is all about the call, call to perseverance. Now, it can be misunderstood. 
Hebrews 10 is one of these chapters, like Hebrews 6, where we can get caught up with the commentaries, caught up with what other people's perspective on the chapter, and, and get caught up with this doctrine of once saved, always saved. And so we'll get into Hebrews 10. There's some verses in here that one will say this means, you know, once we're saved, we're always saved. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. So I just want to start by saying be, be careful with commentaries. You know, the commentaries are important, but um, we, we have to be careful. And just give me a second here. I just need to uh, set up my um, scripture. Just make sure that it's set up properly. I just had a, just give me one moment. Uh, talk amongst yourselves while I just clean this up. Uh, just the configuration window is incorrect. So let me just clean this. Sorry about this, brethren. I just um, this uh, adjustment that was made that shouldn't have been. And I think that's okay now. Okay, we'll have to go with this. It's not quite right. I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, we'll go with this. Okay. So uh, what I'm what I'm saying, uh, just starting off, as we go into Hebrews 10, um, be careful with other people's perspectives on this chapter. Um, commentaries are good, they're important, especially when we're going into a book for the first time and we want the historical backdrop for the book. These scholars have done great research, that, that's fantastic. But in terms of exegesis, what I would recommend is always, always, always read the book, read the letter, read the epistle for yourself. And, and rely more on cross-references to other passages and let the Bible interpret itself. And that's where our understanding will really come from. Uh, we, we, with the Holy Spirit, we sit above the commentators, and I hope that doesn't sound arrogant, but these are scholars, and many of these scholars actually have lost their faith, and so they just take the Bible more from a scholarly, academic perspective. Uh, they can help us, certainly any intelligent person who studies and researches the Bible can help us, but they really cannot, uh, they're not authoritative, they're suggestive. We should be able to read commentaries and, and disagree with them. We should be able to read multiple commentaries and get ideas from them, but we shouldn't take them as authoritative. And, and we would never, as I said earlier, come into chapter 10 or chapter 6 of Hebrews and conclude that the apostle must be talking to three different audiences and, and conclude that, you know, that there's one audience among the others that is once saved, always saved, but the others, and, and there's others that are doomed to perdition and there's nothing they can do. That idea comes into our heads. And so if you go to the commentaries first, you get these ideas implanted in your head and then you go to the text, you can't unsee how you've been influenced. But if you go to the text first, and go to the cross-references and see what the other texts are saying, we with the Holy Spirit who understand the plan of God, we're going to have an understanding. And then if you go, if you have time and you, you go to the comment, or maybe there's a particular passage that you're struggling with, not quite sure what it means, then you go to the commentaries. And then you can look at them and say, I disagree with that. And here's why, because I saw another scripture that says this. And so we really sit above the commentaries Again, I don't hope that doesn't mean uh, sound arrogant, but look at what David said in Psalm 119.99. I have more understanding 
than all my teachers. So he came to the point where he, he didn't take all the teachers as authoritative because he came to a point where he had more understanding than them. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. Because he was constantly thinking, thinking, thinking about God's word and about God's law and his testimonies, the, the, the connections were starting to be made at a very deep level and he gained an insight and a level of understanding that, that was profound. Here he says, I have more understanding than the ancients because I keep your law, because I keep your precepts. That's why. So we who have the Holy Spirit, who keep God's law, who meditate on God's law, we can have an understanding that surpasses obviously those without the Holy Spirit, but even those with the Holy Spirit who came before us, that, that we can gain more knowledge. Now you might say, oh, but Adrian, that's David, that's not us. But look at us today. Look at what, what uh, Christ says in Matthew 13, verse 51. He says, Jesus said unto them, have you understood all these things? So Christ was teaching them and asked them, do you understand? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then notice what the Lord said next. In verse 52 of Matthew 13, he says, then said he unto them, Therefore, every scribe, not, not just a few, but every scribe, which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven, is like unto a man that is a householder, which brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. So this is what every scribe who is taught in the kingdom of heaven can do. We can bring things old, so what the teachers before us have taught, but also Christ says that every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder which brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. So we're, we're not just repeating what everybody else has said. We have the ability to dive into the scriptures, to look at what's happening around us, because as the world changes, different scriptures jump off the page, they, they come to life, that they're sitting there dormant, they don't really make sense, but then something happens in the world around us and suddenly that scripture makes all the sense in the world. And this is how we, who are current, can bring forth out of the scriptures things that nobody else has brought forth before. Now, that's what God does, he, he, he gives us scribes uh, so that we can stay current, the, the word of God is alive, it's living. And so he gives us scribes so that we can have this living word. And he says that in Ephesians, he says, But unto every one of us, every one of us in the body, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we are all given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Therefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So he ascended and then he gave gifts to us. What were these gifts? He tells us in verse 11 that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. So, you know, we know that the, the prophets are coming in the future, the two witnesses are our prophets, but today we don't have apostles and prophets. Apostles are those that were directly sent by Christ. They, they actually communicated directly with him and they were sent directly by him. And, and then obviously we know prophets have the word of God and the ability to prophesy. But we do have evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And these are gifts from God to us. 
and, and, and some of us uh, might be gifted in one area, more so uh, others in another area. I know myself and, and Pastor Murray, we work very closely together. Uh, both of us are teachers, both of us are pastors. Uh, my ministry tends more to emphasize the teaching side, and even though he's a very powerful teacher, he seems to have this more stronger gift than me in the pastoral side. You know, we do these studies together, and uh, brethren who are seeking baptism, seeking counseling, after these studies, he's counseling them. He's making time for him to be available to them and counsel them one-on-one. -on -one. And so these are, and, and this is no effort to him, and despite how busy he is, it's almost like it's effortless. And for us, you know, we, we are tent makers, we have our, our jobs, and yet somehow we're able to do this. It's not us, it's the Holy Spirit. And that's what God gives us, it's a gift of God to the church. All, all the ministers are gifts of God to the church as we are serving in these different roles. And what's the purpose? For your perfection, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So that this, this is really all about you. And, and you have a responsibility in this. This is where when we see in Acts, uh, the apostle says that these were more noble, those in, in, in Berea, were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and then they searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. so. So we have this responsibility to search the scriptures ourselves, to dig into it, to meditate on it, to make new connections, to bring things out of it that are old, but also to bring things out that are new, to teach you, but then you're not to be passive and just say, well, the minister said it must be true. You're to take this and say, you know, does that sound right? Is that right? And then search the scriptures. And if it's truth, it, it's light. And as you search other parts of the scriptures, you understand them more. If we teach you something that's confusion, then you search other parts of the scriptures, it doesn't add, it doesn't help. In fact, it makes you just more confused. But if it's true, if it's truly light, and if it's from God, it's gonna open up the scriptures. And, and, and when you're doing your own study in places that we are not even thinking of, you, you're understanding it even more. But that is, it, this is sort of a mutual path that we're on, where those of us who are ordained into ministry, it's our responsibility to teach, it's our responsibility to pastor. Those of us who are not in ministry, it's our responsibility to study, to make ourselves approved, to show ourselves approved, ready to teach, because all of us are going to become teachers, all of us are going to become uh, ministers of God. So, just remember that we, it's, a, it's a mutual process, but strong meat, in Hebrews we read this when we were in chapter 5, strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. That even those who by reason of use, use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So that is your responsibility to, to be able to discern both good and evil. So that when people are teaching, if I come and I say, once saved, always saved, is that true? Does that help you understand the scriptures? Or, or is that something that just, okay, I can see how you get it from that one verse, but I really don't see it anywhere else. Uh, you, that's your responsibility. And so again, that's why I say be, caught, be careful with commentaries, be careful with, with teachers. That everybody, in fact, everybody today that says, I'm a minister of Christ, is under a cloud of suspicion. Unfortunately, that includes me. Because Christ said, many will come in my name and say I am Christ and shall deceive many. So, so nobody gets a pass. And what we have to do is com com compare what we're being taught with the Word of God. 
And then as long as it complies with the Word of God, wonderful. But once we start teaching things like, hey, you know what? You can relax. You're, oh, no problem. You've got the Holy Spirit. Relax. You're good. No problem at all. Everyone else will be in trouble. But, ah, don't worry. Relax. Begin to neglect. This is dangerous. So let's get into uh, Hebrews 10 and see really what is it, what is it really teaching. And we'll just back up a little bit to pick up the tail end of nine, because of you know, as you know, I keep emphasizing, these um, scriptures were not broken up by by chapter and verse. Uh, they were scrolls, and and the ancients, when they read it, they would read and memorize the whole passage, so they had all the context. Because we've broken it up into chapters and verses, we can jump in and out anywhere, and we can just take things in isolation and miss the whole context. And particularly when we're studying the Apostle Paul, particularly when we're studying the Apostle Paul, we have to be careful. Uh, because, you know, I think today, one of, one of the things we, we many of us, uh, just the way we've been wired in this society, we suffer from attention deficit disorder. And uh, you cannot read, you cannot study the Apostle Paul if we have attention deficit disorder. Because this is, a, this is a man, this is a teacher that has a very long train of thought. He begins a thought, let's say in chapter 1, and, and we're in chapter 10, and if we forgot the, the thought that he initiated in chapter 1, then we really don't understand what he's saying in chapter 10. You, you have to stay with him, you have to stay with this train of thought. And so that's why context really matters here. We can't take any one verse and just jump off the page and, and, and run away with it and think this is what it means. We have to always be going back and just making sure we're following the thread of his reasoning, following the train of his thought. So here we'll just go back, pick up uh, Hebrews 9. It was all about Christ being this uh, superior sacrifice, which, which was in the context of him being a superior high priest, which was in the context of us considering him as our high priest, but that was after we should consider him as the apostle, a superior apostle. So because he's a superior apostle, he's superior to, the, to than anyone else that was sent with God's message, then when we consider that and we consider the punishment on our forefathers for neglecting the previous messengers and that this messenger is so much greater, then we are under a much greater punishment if we neglect Christ as, the, as God's apostle. Then we're to consider him as our high priest that he is for us, he wants us to succeed. So as much as we are under um, dire consequences if we reject this message, we also have a wonderful, uh, very empathetic high priest, very powerful high priest, who actually wants us to succeed. And in the context of this consideration of Christ as our high priest, we are asked to consider as well how superior this high priest's sacrifice is so the high priest is not just superior to the Aaronic high priest. The actual sacrifice and offering that this high priest makes is far superior than anything that the other high priests have made. And so we'll just pick up this in the tail end in, in chapter 9. He says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. This is our high priest. Nor yet should he be offered himself, I'm just going to shrink this a little bit, there we go. Uh, 
For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet should he offer himself often as the uh, offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So we should be looking for Christ. Don't get caught up with all the ugliness that's going on around us in the, in the world. That's going to happen. That's prophesied to happen. Look for Christ. And those who love his appearing, who are looking for his appearing, he's going to appear for us unto salvation. So that's the backdrop that we're coming into chapter 10 now. Chapter 10 really being all about the, the, the perseverance. And as, you're, as we're going along here, please think about any um, comments or questions or thoughts that you, would, you might have. And please join us um, for the chat. We go to cgi.churchonline.org. And, and that's where we have live chat, live conversation, maybe things that you've heard that you weren't sure about or things you've heard that it's triggered another scripture. Uh, join us, uh, immediate, just jot down your thoughts, ideas, comments, and then join us for the chat immediately afterward. So here we have, and I think I see what this problem is now. Hang on a second. We have a problem. Strange. I think I think I think I know what it is. All right. Anyway, we'll we'll work with that. Um, in fact, give me one moment. I'm just going to set this up so that we do this properly. This is going to work out just fine. Yeah. So um, we're going to come into chapter ten, and it's really this call for perseverance, and we need to understand this. It's it's not. It's not the perseverance of the saints, which is what uh, Calvin taught, that no matter what we do, uh, we cannot fail. Uh, that's not at all what it's teaching. It is, in fact, teaching that we must persevere. He who endures to the end, the same will be saved. So let me just um, configure this now. We'll do the cropping. How's that? Sorry, just software can be a little bit finicky at times, but we will work through this and get it working for us. Okay, so all coming together very nicely. Please be patient. In fact, this chapter is all about patience, so that we, we have need for patience. So we'll just get this going in just a moment. Let's do this now. there. I'm glad this is a friendly audience. We're almost there. Let's see the bottom and the right. And the top. Okay. I think that's good enough for us now. 
we should be fine with that. Software, wonderful when it works and a little troublesome when it doesn't work. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get back into the study here. And uh, so this is this call for perseverance. That's what we're into in chapter 10. So he says, um, for the law, having a shadow of things to come. So, so we have to be very clear, what is the role of the law? And again, he's speaking to Hebrews who want to turn back to Judaism. And he's saying that the law, having a shadow of good things to come. So it's not the thing, it's a shadow of the thing. It's a shadow of good things to come, of the gospel, and not the very image of the things, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. And that word is telios, so mature, to, to bring them to completion. And the Torah is all about a path. The Torah really means the path of an arrow as it heads to its target. So, so that when it hits the target, it is telios. It, it, it hit the objective. That's what telios means. So the law, with those sacrifices which they offered every year, it couldn't bring them to telios. It couldn't bring them to the... When, when God created mankind, the objective that he had in mind, the law was pointing man to that objective, but with these sacrifices, it could never bring him there. So it was just a shadow of the good things to come. And, and this coming to perfection, again, we have to... We can't have this attention deficit disorder. This is an argument that Paul began in chapter 6, telling them to leave the fundamental principles behind and let's go on unto perfection. Let's go on unto maturity. Let's go on unto hitting the target. So now he is actually going to uh, discuss this in detail as to how it is that we hit the target, that the law is, is designed to hit the target. Christ was the one who came, lived by the law, hit the target, and now he's working with us to bring us to perfection. So he's saying, let's, let's leave the foundation now. Let's go on to maturity. So verse 2 of chapter 10. For then, so these sacrifices that could never bring us to Telios, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? So if they could do the job of bringing us to the target, then wouldn't they have stopped being offered because they did the job? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. So if these sacrifices actually worked and did the job and brought us to completion, then we wouldn't need to offer them anymore. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So this is just, it's just not possible. So when you think of how God designed man in his likeness and image, it's just not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body you have prepared for me. So, this is very interesting. Christ is bringing us to Telios. He comes, follows the Torah, so that he can achieve Telios, as a pioneer to bringing us along. But when he comes into the world, he recognizes that sacrifice and offering is not what God wants, but a body God has prepared for him. So he left his, the Godhead, and he came into the world with a body that God had prepared for him. And that's going to be significant. He says further, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. So even though the forefathers 
we're doing these things religiously, continually, on atonement, year after year, the high priest would do all of this. And yet, Paul is saying here, quoting Christ, that in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, God had no pleasure in that. So you can do that as much as you like. This is not what is pleasing to God. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is what pleases God. Not the burnt offerings, as religiously as they were performed. But instead it's that God, Christ comes to do his will. And in the volume of the scriptures it's written of him. He's actually quoting Psalm 40. And, and when Paul is quoting this, he wants the, the Hebrews, in fact, they probably have this memorized, to go back and get the context from the psalm, which we'll just do quickly here to pick up. He says in Psalm 40, this is David the psalmist writing, I waited patiently for the Lord. This is what the Hebrews must do. Wait patiently for the Lord. And he inclined unto me, he will answer, and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. So this is with the confidence that the Hebrews should have that God is faithful and God will bring us out of the pit. Then he says, dropping down to verse 6, this is what Christ was actually quoting, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. God never wanted this. My ears have you opened, burnt offering and sin offering has you not required. This is not what pleases God. This is what the Hebrews want to go back to. And Paul is quoting the psalmist to say, God never, God never wanted this. This does not please God. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So here the psalmist, even though he's speaking of himself, the way Paul quotes him, he's indicating that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist was actually speaking as Christ, as the Messiah. I delight to do your will, O my God, Yes, your law is within my heart. So Christ came as the perfect Israelite so that we could have this new covenant so that his law could be in our heart. But Christ had to be the pioneer. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips. O Lord, you know. And now this is dual. It's, it's, it's the psalmist, but he's also speaking of Christ. But now it comes back to the psalmist. I have not hid your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. This is what the Hebrews must do. Don't back down. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Withhold not your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. This is how the Hebrews should be thinking. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. This is exactly the plight of the Hebrews. They're in the pit, they're in this horrible pit, they're surrounded by evil, their iniquities have overtaken them, uh, their heart fails them. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and confused together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Let them be desolate for a reward of their shame that say unto me, Aha, aha. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening to the Hebrews. It's prophesied what is to happen to God's people in the end time. Let all those that seek you rejoice and be glad in you. 
Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. So he was quoting from Psalm 40. Let's see what the apostle does with this now. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you don't want, but a body you have prepared for me. So now the apostle is commenting on the psalm. So, so Christ, the, the psalm is really about the Messiah, but now the apostle is going to uh, exegete this for us. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. No pleasure at all. You want to go back to that? God had no pleasure in it. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. So in the volume of the book, it is written of me, we should think now, remember when we were in Luke, when Christ was 12 years old, it came to pass after three days, they found him in the temple in Jerusalem, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So he was searching the volume of the scrolls and seeing everything that was written of him. And he came to do God's will. So as he's asking these questions and learning, and what do, well, what about this? Well, if that's true, well, what about this scripture? And he was learning God's will, and he came to do God's will. So back to Hebrews 10. And when he said, sacrifice, so, so now listen to, to Paul. Above when he said, so he's now going to explain this, sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings, and offering for sin, you didn't want, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, after this, so, so Paul is looking at the psalm, and he's saying he said this, that there's no pleasure in these burnt offerings. And then after he said this, then he said, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. So he separates this. First, there's no pleasure in these offerings. After acknowledging that there's no pleasure in these offerings, then he said, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. And he makes that separation so that he can say this. He takes away the first, that is the burnt offerings, the sin offerings. They're now taken away. He takes those away that he may establish the second. And the second is doing the will of God. The second is doing the will of God. So the old covenant is now old. The first covenant is done away. And the new covenant is established because Christ came to do God's will. By the which will, so this will of God, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he says, I've come, you've given me a body, so the reason God gave him this human body is so that he could offer it. This is the offering. So the, the initial offerings, God had no pleasure in those. But Christ came as an, a human being as an Israelite, and he offered up himself. And this is the superiority of this offering. So the blood of bulls and goats, it could never take away sins, but this offering, once and for all, takes everything away. And it looks like we've, we may have lost the video, but uh, everything seems fine on my side. I wonder if you can still hear me. I wonder if you can still hear me. Let me know if you can still hear. I cannot hear anymore, wow. I'm not sure what to do. Everything seems fine on my side. Um, I wonder if you can maybe reach out to Jeff and let him know that uh, the site seems to be down. Uh, everything seems fine here. 
I'm not sure if it'll come back up. I think I'm still broadcasting on Facebook. So I'll just tell everybody here to go to Facebook. Oh, okay, I'm back, that's great. Okay, so I can't see that what the problem is, but apparently I'm, I'm back up now. I'm not sure where we left off, but we're up to Hebrews 10. I can see that we're still up on, on Facebook. And in fact, that reminds me, there's one other thing I wanted to test to see if that will work. And uh, that's there, okay. So very good. All right, so um, let me just back up a little bit just in case uh, you missed that so that we can have um, uh, continuity. So I'll just come back up to um, verse 8. He says, so Paul is now commenting on the psalmist. And he says, who is, who is speaking under inspiration of the Spirit for the Messiah. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin you would not, neither did you have pleasure in them which are offered by the law then said he so paul is making a big deal that first he said that then after that he said lo i come to do your will O god so the meaning in it that paul gets from this is that he takes away the first the thing that did not please god that he may establish the second the thing that pleases god so the, the first is the, the first covenant and then Christ came to take all of that away to do the will of God, which is the redemption of Israel through the new covenant, that God will make a new covenant with Israel. And so the fact that he said after God had no pleasure in the burnt offerings, then he said, I come to do your will, O God. So this is how the, the first covenant becomes obsolete. This will of God, he says, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So earlier, uh, the psalmist said, uh, I, you know, I've come, uh, and you've a body you've given to me, and I've come to do your will, and the volume of the text of the scripture, of the scroll, it's written of me, and I've come to do your will, and you've given me this body. Now we come to understand that he was given a human body so that he could offer it as the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect human being, he was the perfect Israelite, and he came to offer his, himself as this perfect offering. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So they keep offering these sacrifices, and these sacrifices can never take away sins. So they have to keep coming back. But this man, it says man, but this one, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And this is where we're beginning now. We're going to have the commentators begin to say, this is once saved, always saved. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. But let's stay in the context. Let's, we'll, we'll deal with this later. We'll just read the whole chapter. And uh, we could never come away with this conclusion. He says he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Then he sat down on the right hand of God. From there, 
expecting till his enemies become his footstool. And that's something that uh, the, the Israelites and in fact everybody in the ancient world would quite understand. Because when the kings conquered their enemies, they made them their footstools. And so it is a complete humiliation of what was once a powerful enemy. That enemy is now completely subjugated and made his footstool. And so this Christ, this Messiah who comes to do God's will, woe unto them that are his enemies. Woe unto them that are his enemies. And all of them will be made his footstool. So he says, for by one offering, he has perfected, there's that word again, uh, Paul, this is part of the theme of Paul's thinking. We've got to leave the old ways behind. They, they were never designed to bring us to maturity. They were never designed to bring us to the target, to bring us to Tilios. Uh, now, by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And this, again, is the verse that, you know, those who believe in the Calvinism uh, theory of one saved, they're going to look at this. One offering, perfected forever, them that are sanctified. But if we just read a little bit further, we get to verse 26. If we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. So there's this glorious sacrifice for sins, which is thorough and complete and far superior to anything. And it, it, it does completely the job, unlike the other sacrifices. And it's, it's, it's done once forever. But Paul says in the very same chapter, if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. So there is a sacrifice, but if we neglect it, there's nothing else. And this is hearkening back, same theme. He actually started this theme in chapter 6, where he said it's impossible for those who are once enlightened, they've tasted of the heavenly gift, they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, and they fought, it shouldn't say if, it should say and, same word, kai, and they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So this is a great warning from the apostle. Don't do this. Once you accept the uh, sacrifice of Christ, once you put your hand to the plow, we cannot turn back. We cannot turn back. There's no other sacrifice for sins. And, and he'll deal with that. And again, going back to Hebrews 3, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, Partakers of the heavenly calling. This is who he's talking to. We're, we're, and there's not this three audiences. This is a, a Gnostic uh, notion that if we study Gnosticism, we do come to understand. And, and, and there is this uh, creeping in into the body, uh, the ancient church, that the philosophers who brought with them this Gnostic notion of Christianity, where the Greeks believed in these three different types of human beings, the, the pneumatics, which were the spiritual teachers, then under them, the psychics, which had potential to become pneumatics. And then the hylics, which were doomed. These were the material-oriented material beings that could never be enlightened. And so this notion of three audiences comes from Gnosticism. This is not the way Hebrews think. Hebrews think in terms of covenant community. And Paul is talking to the covenant community. And he's saying to the covenant community, holy brethren, Partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. So this is, this is where this whole argument, this train of thought began, that we are partakers of the heavenly calling. We've got to consider the apostle, but also consider him as our high priest. And don't fall away.
And then in verse 12, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you, anybody in the, in the covenant community, an evil heart of unbelief. This is the whole issue. Let's not get into unbelief. Let's just stay true in departing from the living God. So we can depart from the living God. To, we're partakers of the Holy Spirit. We have association through covenant with the living God. But like our forefathers, an evil heart of unbelief can take over and take us away. And that's why he says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So just read the text and read it for, and stay within the train of thought. There's a covenant community and he's saying, be careful and care for your brother too. So exhort one another daily. This is so important. None of us can fall behind here. None of us can slip. So care for each other and make sure that none of us have our hearts hardened. Because sin is deceitful. It comes in many forms. It comes in bitterness. It comes in um, lasciviousness, lustfulness. It comes in envy. It comes in hatred. It comes in resentment. It comes in many, many ways. And it hardens our hearts. And then he says in verse, again, staying back in chapter 3, if for we are made partakers of Christ, we the covenant community, we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Exactly what Christ said. He that in shall endure unto the end shall be saved. So, so there's this notion of you've got to endure to the end to be saved. In chapter 4 he says, Let us, the covenant community, let us therefore fear. And this is a good fear, a godly fear. This is a fear that God wants us to have. Not to be overconfident and complacent and negligent, but rather to understand what we have been recruited into and have a godly fear and a godly fear for one another. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us, us, the promises for us, of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. Could, not any particular, any of us should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So Paul identifies the issue for the forefathers. It was faith. And he identifies the issue for the Hebrews of the first century. Lack of faith. They were failing in their faith. And that's identifying the issue for us. When Christ says, he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. Now we know what the issue is. And so when he says, the love of many shall wax cold, and brother shall betray brother, now we know what the issue is. So that he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Christ came, and he studied the word of God, and he committed himself to doing God's will. We must do the same. Study the word of God. Where and how are we mentioned in the word of God? And how do we fulfill his will? How do we come to do his will? Because basically, the script is written, the roles, the, the stage is ready, and the roles are there. And so certain roles are not available, but other roles are. And so we have to decide, what's our role in this grand play that's, that's playing out? Well, we want to be among the faithful. And we have to have a sense of, of awe and a sense of appropriate fear of God to be motivated to, to stay true. That we fear God more than we fear men. 
So men, yeah, they're terrible. They're horrible. Horrible. But we fear God more. And so here, uh, the psalmist says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So there is a book of life, and it is possible to have our name blotted out of it. But again, if we listen to men, uh, scholarly men and, and men who want to comment on the Bible, they can tell us anything. And so this, this one says, God blots out his people's sins, but not their names. Oh, okay. Well, then why does God, maybe he didn't make it to the book of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, Christ himself, this is red letters, Christ himself says, he that overcomes. So he that fears me more than he fears men, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. The implication being, if we don't overcome, he will blot out our name out of the book of life. So, so thanks very much, Thomas Watson, for your commentary on the Bible. But no thanks. No thanks. We have the Holy Spirit. And we can read the Bible for ourselves. And we don't need letters after our last name to say we have so-and-so degrees where we went to the seminary and lost our faith and began to take the Bible academically. He that overcomes, that one shall be clothed in white raiment. And that one will not have his name blotted out of the book of life. But I will confess that one's name before my father and before his angels. The roles are out there. there are, there's a whole category of people that are overcomers. And there's a whole category of saints that fail. And we are here studying the words, studying the volume to understand the volume of the text, the script. What's our role? And how, okay, we are overcomers. What do we have to be, do to be successful? Well, it's certainly not sitting back and saying we've got it made. Nothing to do. It's about realizing this is tough. And it's going to get tougher. And then after it gets tougher, it's still going to get even tougher. So we've got to toughen up. And so we can't put the Holy Spirit in at the last minute. We've got to be building the Holy Spirit now, building up our spiritual muscle now, so that when the times come, we're ready. We're ready. We don't have to go into the marketplace looking, where, where can we buy the Holy Spirit? No, we're ready. He says, Moses says in Exodus, if you will not forgive Israel's sin, blot me, I pray, out of your book. So Moses understood this book of life that his name was written in. And Moses understood that just because your name is in the book of life doesn't mean it stays in the book of life. Moses understood that his name could be removed and their names could be removed. This is an ancient understanding that just because our name is in the book of life doesn't mean it stays there. And so God actually responds to Moses and says, whoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. He doesn't say just his sins I'll blot out. This is the nation that God set up to be the king priests of the earth. And God is saying, okay, if, if they deliberately sin against me, I'll blot their name out of the book of life. Not you, Moses, because you're following my law. So let's go back now to the passage. By one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. So let's keep this train of thought. It's all about teleos coming to perfection. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us, 
For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. So the Holy Spirit, he says, is also uh, also is a witness to us. So, so we have this, this witness, but you know what? We know this truth because the Holy Spirit itself is a witness to us. How do we know? For after that he had said before, so, so what he said in the psalm, actually something was written before that. What was written before that? This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So the fact that we have the Holy Spirit means we are participating in this new covenant, which means that the Holy Spirit in us is evidence and proof that there must be a mechanism through which sin is done away. That God no longer has to remember our sin. There must be some kind of an offering that makes this new covenant possible where our sins and iniquities, we don't have to keep coming back every year with the, the blood of bulls and goats, but that it will be just done, done once and for all and our conscience will be purged. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So, so something happened with this covenant that is very, very different from the covenants of the past. Because in the past, obviously sin was not fully remitted. So every year they had to keep coming back. But this new covenant says the sins will be remembered no more. So in this new covenant where, where there's remission of sin, there's no more offering for sin. So back when we said in, in the beginning of the chapter that they would not have ceased to be offered if they dealt with sin. Because the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. So in this new covenant when the laws are in our heart and there's some sort of an offering that purges our conscience, then there's a full remission of sin. So he says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness, to enter into the holiest. So, so something has changed, something has happened, and we now have this boldness, this, this confidence, that where the high priest could only go into the holiest once a year, we can now go there with boldness and confidence by the blood of Jesus. That's how effectual this blood is, this offering is. By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us. He came to do God's will. God gave him a body so that he could do God's will and offer that body and consecrate us. So this new and living way, he has consecrated us. So he says here, <clears throat> By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So his flesh, this body that God prepared for him, in a sense was the veil that made it possible for us to come through into the Holy of Holies and commune with God directly. And having a high priest over the house of God. So remember this, this argument of Christ as our high priest. Paul began all the way back in chapter 5 after arguing the superiority of Christ as apostle. And now he's coming to this conclusion around Christ as the high priest. So because we have this high priest now, he says, let, let us draw near with a true heart. 
Remember, the whole problem was the heart, the heart of unbelief. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So there's something different in us now. We, we have this confidence, we have this boldness that we, we, without this understanding, we wouldn't have had before. But now we have this understanding. We understand just how precious Jesus Christ's blood is. And so because of the preciousness of his blood, nothing to do with us. Nothing to, there's no righteousness we have that, that exceeds that of filthy rags. Nothing to do with us. But we understand Jesus Christ. We understand the, the magnitude of his sacrifice. And we understand his role as high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And that's where our confidence comes from. And so we're able to draw near now with a true heart. We can take our heart and give it to Christ. And he'll wash it for us. And he'll put his spirit in us and his law in our heart. It doesn't say do away with the law. He'll put it in our heart so that we can actually observe it. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there is this now Christian baptism that enables us to move, go on unto Tilios. He says, now, because of this understanding, this, this is, again, remember, we're combining this with the book of Revelation to make it come alive for us. And, and therefore, with Matthew 24 and Luke 21, he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. It's all about faith. It's all about belief. And the Hebrews were faltering. They were, they were, they were getting sloppy and, and, and they were beginning to slip. And so he's encouraging them to say, don't do that. Consider Christ, first consider the, the superiority of who, who was sent with this message, this gospel. Now consider how superior he is as high priest. And when you consider how superior he is as high priest, take that knowledge and hold fast the profession of our faith. Remember, he's the high priest of our profession. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Why, why can we do that? For he is faithful that promised. And that's what God wants from us, that we believe in him. We trust him. That's what Abraham did. Abraham said, okay, God says this, I'm doing it. I believe him. And that's what God wants from us. So we see, and this is again, we went back to chapter 3, where the fathers, the forefathers, could not enter because of unbelief. This is the key to our success. We are going to hold fast. We are going to endure to the end because he is faithful that promised. And, and this is, again, we're tying this into the book of Revelation, so this is all current. We need Hebrews in order, even though it's a book of the past, it's actually a book of the future. And we need it to face the future that is outlined to us in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, it shows us that the unbelieving, the faithless, are thrown into the lake of fire first. There's no one saved, always saved. That if we turn back and allow unbelief to take over, that's it. It's the unbelieving. We can't be unbelieving and be in the kingdom of God. If we, are, if, we have this, if we allow this hardness of heart, this unbelief to take over, the word says we perish. God does not want that. He wants us to believe in him, to trust him. He's faithful. He's faithful that promised. So first the unbelieving, then the abominable. All these horrible things that we see, if these people don't repent, they will be thrown in the lake of fire. But for those who did repent, 
and believe and then turn to unbelief. They go first. God forbid that it's any of us. So now notice this in verse 24 of Hebrews 10. We have to stay with Paul's train of thought. God spoke in the past through other messengers to our forefathers. And they rejected him. Apart from Joshua and Caleb and Moses, they rejected him. They didn't, they didn't believe him. And so he swore in his wrath. Because they didn't believe him, he swore in his wrath, they cannot enter into my rest. Christ is a far superior apostle. And he comes with the same gospel. And if we don't believe it, the same good news of what God wants to bring us into this promised land and make us a nation of kings and priests to minister to the world, if we don't believe it, of how much greater punishment will we be subjected to? We, the covenant community, not the Gentiles, the covenant community will be subjected to a far greater punishment. But then he says, okay, so he spent four chapters telling us that. Now he spent the last five chapters just telling us how great a high priest Jesus Christ is of the order of Melchizedek and how great his sacrifice is, his own body, his own blood is the offering that this Melchizedekian priest brought to the Father into the Holy of Holies. These are the two considerations that he wants us to understand. Now he introduces a third consideration. Now he says, and let us consider one another. So now we're changing gears. So first considering him as, our, our, as the apostle, the superior apostle, then we changed gears and we were considering him as the superior high priest and with a superior sacrifice in a superior tabernacle. And now we're changing gears again. Now let us consider one another. Why should we consider one another? To provoke unto love and to good works. That when we grasp all of this, and we grasp what is at stake, let us not have the orientation of, oh, I must be saved. Let, let me make sure I make it. Instead, let us have the orientation of community. Okay, wow, we are all in this together. Let us make sure we, we understand we're on the same team. And I think it's so tragic when, when um, God's team, we don't see ourselves as a team. Let us see ourselves as a team. And let us work together and consider one another and see how we can make the, get, get each other to perform at our absolute best. Because when it's over, it's over. There, I keep saying to myself, there's no rewind button here. There's no rewind. When I die, or when Christ returns, whichever comes first, that's it. There's no like, oh no, I could have, I could have gone a bit harder. I, I could have done more. No, no rewind. It is what it is. Not just for me, for all of us. So let us provoke one another. So we're going to consider one another. So that we can provoke one. Why would we provoke? Provoke is such a strong word. It's, it's like almost getting into argument and, and really uh, upsetting because we see a brighter future. And there's no way we will accept that one of us is going to turn away. So when we see that we're faltering, we're going to provoke each other to love. Don't let bitterness get inside. Love. And to good works. Philippians 2 <clears throat> 
remember when we did the, the chapter Philippians 2, he says, therefore, my beloved, my beloved, he's talking to the community, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul was in, was in prison, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you remember when we studied Philippians right from the beginning, we saw this letter is to the whole community. And every time he says the word you, when we looked at the original language, it's plural. It's the plural you. And when we looked at the verb here for workout, katergazomai, it's plural. And it's in the middle voice, which middle voice in Greek means it's something you do for your own benefit. So do this for yourself. But it's plural. As a community, do this for yourself. And that's the same thing that Paul is saying here in, in uh, 1024. Provoke one another. This is, this is the working out with fear and trembling because we understand what's at stake. And so we've got to katergazomai. We've got to put energy into this with each other to work this out, even to the point of provocation. That it's not just, it's, it, sometimes it's not pleasant. You know, Paul had to be in, in, in uh, Peter's face to provoke him to love. And not just love, but there's works involved as well. And here, and maybe I don't have time to go through all of Philippians uh, 2 right now, but it's in the archive. And the, the, the emphasis on this plural you. Uh, here in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, we're exhorting you, warn them that are unruly. This is again the provocation. That people are being unruly. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So we, we've got to provoke them, we've got to warn them to love. Provoke them to love and good work. So comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient to all men. So, so this third consideration is one another. We've got to provoke one another to love and good works. And, and notice this notion that Paul has of community. He says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So there's going to be conflict. We're going to be provoking one another. We're going to be pushing and there's going to be a little bit of discomfort. All in love, all in the right spirit. As he's not saying in Galatians 5, he says, if you bite and devour one another, be careful that you don't destroy one another. So this is not about biting and devouring. This is Holy Spirit engagement, where we're helping each other. But this, this heart can change, and we can want to forsake the assembly. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Do not do that. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Some, some are doing that. Don't do that. That's dangerous. Instead, you're provoking one another. We also want you to exhort one another. Exhort one another. And, and you know what? So much the more as you see the day approaching. So when we look around us and we see what's going on around us and we, we know lawlessness is abounding. This, the, clearly the signs that we are to look for, we're starting to see. We see the day approaching. What does that mean? We care for each other even more. We love one another fervently. When we start to see each other straying a little bit, we're there, helping each other. We're not allowing the devil to get in between us and stir up bitterness. Instead, we're provoking one another and we're exhorting one another. So much the more, we need one another. Stay in community. He says, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Not before, we're not, this is not Gentiles. These, these, this is converted Christians. We've received the knowledge of the truth, but then we sin willfully. So there's, there's, no, there's no offering for this. 
if we sin willfully. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. That's it. And, and so again, in Philippians, he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is the mind of Christ. This is the mind that we have, where we're in community, and we're constantly thinking of the community, and we're edifying one another. And, and we're not forsaking each other because we realize we need each other. The love of many is going to wax cold. And the devil's going to be working in our heart to, to turn away, but we're not going to do this. We're going to stay and we're going to work, work, out, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So he says, if we sin willfully, um, just going back to where he was, the, the thought, there's no more sacrifice for sin. Instead, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. The unbelieving are thrown into the lake of fire first. A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. So this punishment, just like in ancient Egypt, this punishment is coming on the adversaries. But if you don't take the Passover blood, or if we didn't take the Passover blood and put it over our doorposts, that wrath would come upon us as well. The Passover enables the wrath to pass over us. As it was anciently, so it will be with this second Passover, that we must take the blood of Christ, accept it, believe in it, hold on to it, so that when this wrath comes on the adversaries, we are passed over. If we turn away from the blood of Christ, we are thrown in the lake of fire first, with the adversaries. So this wrath that's intended for the world, those of us who turn away from Christ, it comes upon us as well. If we look at the whole letter of Hebrews, which is really a, a sermonic letter, there is no once saved, always saved here. It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. There's a constant urging and exhortation to stay true to the path. Stay true to Christ. Don't turn back. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And we see that in Deuteronomy. One witness shall not rise up against any man for any iniquity, for any sin, in any sin that he sins, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. So once the matter was established, he says, listen to what he says. Uh, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy. Stone that person to death. Oh, but what about the offering? Can we take a sin offering into the temple and stone that person to death? No mercy for that type of willful sin. There was no offering for that. They died without mercy, as long as there were two or three witnesses. So Paul now is telling us, look, the covenant community of the past, our forefathers, those that sinned willfully, they died without mercy. The whole argument is from the lesser to the greater. So of how much sore punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God. The only way you can trod the Son of God underfoot is first you accept Him and then you reject Him. The, 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 the wicked, the, the uh, Gentiles, this has nothing to do with them. This is an inside conversation, Hebrew to Hebrew. So Hebrew to Hebrew, look, look what happened to our forefathers. Do you think it's going to be any different for you? of how much greater punishment, the lake of fire is there, 
Do you suppose he shall be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified? This is not talking about Gentiles. This is talking about the Hebrew community that has been sanctified with the blood of the covenant, with the holy blood of Jesus Christ. He was sanctified with this, and now he's counted this blood uh, an unholy thing. And he has done insult to the spirit of grace. So he, he had the spirit of grace, and now he's insulting the spirit of grace. This is the, the, unforgive, the unpardonable sin, the sin of, against the Holy Spirit. For we know him, we know, we know him, that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me. So go ahead. I was, uh, I'm speaking uh, figuratively here. We can say to somebody, go ahead. I'm not saying to do this. Reject the blood of Christ. God says, vengeance belongs to me. I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that it's written that God, vengeance belongs to God. But it's also written that the Lord shall judge his people. This is about his people. There is no one saved, always saved here. If we read the commentaries first, get these ideas implanted in our head, then when we're reading the scripture, we don't see this, we read over it. And we, we try to piece things together that don't make sense. But if we, read, if we keep these things out of our heads and just read the scriptures and look for the cross-references and tie it all together and struggle with it, and then maybe when we're really struggling with something, then we go to the commentary and say, I wonder what the commentators see, see about this. And then we read this and we say, oh, this, this, this scholar has no idea what he's talking about. We reject it. But you know what? The fact that he thought that, that's interesting because I know it's not true. And I know it's not true because in Exodus, and so it can stimulate our thinking. It can be suggestive, not authoritative. And so he says, the Lord shall judge his people. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the, the, the hands of the living God. He says, I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is directed to the covenant community. This is directed to those who are partakers of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is directed to those who have not only partook of the Holy Spirit, but who are now entertaining turning back. And so we, we saw that already, that it's impossible, seeing as they uh, crucify the Son of God afresh and, and insult Him. But he says, now, now he's encouraging them. Listen to this. But call to remembrance the former days, in which, after you were illuminated, after you received the Holy Spirit, after you were enlightened, after you became a Christian, you endured a great fight of afflictions. So they were persecuted already. And Paul is commending them for how they stood up to this persecution. But Christ doesn't say, he that shall endure persecution shall be saved. He says, he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. So enduring persecution once, great job, wonderful. But we have to keep enduring. And so they actually, they received the Holy Spirit. They were illuminated. Because they, they understood and they were illuminated, they were able to endure this great fight of afflictions. So he says, partly, while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. So these were Christians that were persecuted and laughed at insulted publicly 
but they held their faith. And partly while you became companions of them that were so used. So it happened to them personally. In some cases it happened to brethren and they were companions. They supported the brethren. For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. These are the people he's talking to. People who endured persecution, people who supported the saints, the brethren who were enduring persecution, and people who were illuminated so that they understood that they had a better reward in heaven. And so Christ says in Revelation to us that he's coming quickly and his reward is with him. It's not that we're going to heaven. It's that he with, it, with our reward, our reward is in heaven and he's coming to earth with it. He says, cast not away therefore your confidence. He's talking to the people who have the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, Christ has done it. This, this sacrifice, consider him as our high priest. Consider how holy his sacrifice is. Consider just how effective he is as the Melchizedekian high priest with his own body as, and his own blood as the blood of the covenant. And don't cast away your confidence. So you, you endured persecution once already. Don't turn back now. You've already been illuminated. You're partakers of the Holy Spirit. You're in this walk. Don't go backward. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has a great recompense of reward. So it's either you're going to be judged harshly by, by, by God, because he'll judge his people, or you're going to be judged with reward, because you've remained faithful. You did not turn away. He says, for you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Christ came to do the will of God. He received the promise. And, and this is the whole, and we're going to go now into chapter 11 next week, which is called the faith chapter. But I think many times we just, again, we just read chapter 11 in isolation. Oh, the faith chapter. Chapter 11 is part of this changing gear. First, consider the, the apostle. Okay, do you understand? what it means if you turn back of the, turn your back on the, this apostle this superior apostle then consider the high priest you don't have to turn you don't have to be a failure consider the high priest now consider one another consider one another don't just think of yourself don't don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together consider the others it's not just about you let's make sure that we're all successful together and so in that context next week we'll go into uh, hebrews 11 but he says you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And that's why Christ says we must endure to the end. There's need of patience. That's why in Revelation, uh, John says, this is the patience and faith of the saints, that we understand that God is coming and he's going to judge the wicked. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. It's just a little while. It's going to seem, you know, if you're doing something that's hard or painful, a second feels like eternity. And, and certainly a minute, 10 minutes, just like, well, will this ever stop? When you're having fun, time flies. Uh, but the prophecy says that it's going to be a difficult time for the saints. And so time is just going to seem to drag on. But it's just a little while. It's all relative. It's just a little while. And then he's coming and he won't tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. This is all in the context of consider one another. The justified those that understand this, this high priest and the, the, the blood of the covenant, it's not, our, it's not our righteousness that justifies us. It's his righteousness. And the just shall live by faith in his blood. But if any man draw back, again, he's talking to the covenant community, 
My soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. So he's encouraging them now. Come on, don't be like those who have forsaken. So he says, as is the manner of some. So some have already forsaken the assembly. Some have already turned back. Let's not be like them. We're not like them. But we're of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And so this is, again, what's going to introduce where we are next week with the, the faith, what's called the faith chapter, where he now says, this is what faith is. So the whole thing is about the heart and faith. And in the context now of considering one another, he wants us to understand faith so that we can provoke one another, so that we can exhort one another, so that we can all be successful together. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's the superior apostle. He's our king. He's our husband. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So let's, uh, let's have a conversation. If you have some time to chat, we certainly would welcome that. Uh, just go to uh, cgi.churchonline.org and let's ask questions. Let's encourage one another. Let's exhort one another. Let's provoke one another to love and good works. God bless. Good night.